Right, so the, the mystery topic for tonight. <laughs> what we're going to be looking at tonight is the subject of everyday work, looking at the matter of work. And just to, before we start into that, to again say what we said last time, the reason for uh, not announcing it beforehand is not just that we want to play games with you or whatever, um, but uh, well, it's a couple of reasons, really. One is that by not announcing it beforehand, I'm at liberty to do what I'm very likely to do, which is change my mind at the last minute. Um, uh, that does happen. And, uh, but secondly, um, I suppose our feeling is that really, well, there's two ways of regarding people in the church, either as consumers or members. Consumers want to pick and choose what they feel is appropriate. Members say, we're part of this. And so we're treating the church as members, saying, no, we're part of this, and we're not going to sort of pick and choose to see uh, what we like and what we don't like. But also, of course, even in the, the most mature member, there is still an element of the consumer. And so last time, when we looked at the subject of death, there were several who afterwards said to me that had they known beforehand what the subject was, they might well have opted not to come. But they said they're so glad they had come. And so that is a factor that we can think, oh, that doesn't really apply or whatever, or I don't really want to think about that. And, you know, death is not kind of the subject. We say, yes, I'm really keen on death. Um, so... There's some subject, I assure you, in these topic evenings, we're never going to come, on a, come to a subject that doesn't apply to all of us, that isn't good for all of us to hear about. So you can trust us, I hope. But also, um, as I say, it's not sort of picking and choosing. Surely we're part of it. We want to go with it. Well, tonight, then, the subject of work. And uh, before looking at something of the, what the Bible says, just um, a few current attitudes to this subject. There have been surveys um, of workers' attitudes that reveal that Wednesday is the most depressing day of the week. And it's the most depressing day of the week because it's in the midway point between two weekends. The last weekend is a long way behind us. The next weekend is still days ahead. And so Wednesday is the gloomiest day. In other words, in that mindset, the weekend is what you live for. And work is an unpleasant thing that has to happen in between. Hence the expression, thank God it's Friday. Friday, end of the week, now this is where life begins, the weekend. Mark Twain, the uh, American writer and humorist who had something witty to say about most things, said this, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. And that, I guess, is how many people view work. The ideal for many people is to be in a position where you don't have to work, either through early retirement or maybe a major win on the lottery or some such thing where untold wealth comes your way without you having to earn it. That's kind of the dream for many people in our society, as we are aware. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell said, one of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. You can ponder that one. 
how many of you are heading for a nervous breakdown? One of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. <laughs> I think my work's important. Ah! The church fathers, after the, the period of the early church, the church fathers developed the idea that everyday work is somehow less worthy than more spiritual things. St. Augustine said, the one is loved, the other endured. So, spiritual activities, you love those, but everyday work, well, you have to endure it. The reformers then reacted against that. They rejected that idea, insisting that all work can be regarded as a calling from God. But the earlier idea does persist among many Christians. That the ideal for many Christians would be to be able to reduce time spent in employment, preferably to nil, to devote more time to the church. That's the old idea. So the reformers reacted against that and said, no, all work is a calling from God. Well, what does the Bible say about this? Do we just live for the weekends? What, what's it all about? Right back at the beginning, when God created the world, we read in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2 and verse 5, that there was a time when it says, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. And the reason for that is, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. So the need for people to work was, right, was there right at the beginning. And that was the need for which, which was met by God creating man. And so God created Adam, and what did he do? Well, God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And Adam was put there to work the garden and take care of it. So there was a need for someone to work. Adam is created in order to work, to work the garden and take care of it. Then God looks at Adam with this huge commission and says he needs a helper. Not just to make him feel good, but a helper because of the work. And so God creates Eve to be a suitable helper, to work alongside him. God, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So man is created in God's image, and that is stated in a context where God is working. The work of creation. And later, of course, it says um, that uh, on the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God was working, and he said, now let's make man in our own image. And so it's no great surprise that when he makes man, he makes man to work. That's what it's about. God works so humanity made in his image will also work. Later, as we were seeing this morning, the Ten Commandments come. And the Ten Commandments bring regulation into all of that. And so the Fourth Commandment says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, of course, in looking at that, we can kind of focus on the issue of the Sabbath and maybe uh, discussion of what, what are the implications of the Sabbath for us today. And I don't propose to go into that right now because the other part of the verse mustn't be missed. Six days you will do, you will labor and do all your work. The commandment then, again, is work. Man was made for work. Eve was made to be alongside him at work which maybe handles the question of should women go out to work was a question people used to ask in yesteryear or woman was made along with man to work that was the deal and it says six days you shall labor and do all your work working for six days now of course the, the command to have a day of rest from work necessarily implies the fact we are working the rest of the time of course, more recently, here in the West, we have uh, moved away from working for six days and having one day off. Now, typically, there is a five-day working week. And I was interested reading, uh, dipping into a book from way back in the 1950s about ethics and, and so on, a book called Principles of Conduct. And there, the author, John Murray, says, he, he says, because of the rise of the five-day week, uh, that, he says that explains increasing moral degeneracy, he says. <laughs> She's taken a rather stern line that we're supposed to be working. And having all this time off is kind of setting rot into our, uh, into our culture. Well, certainly, the whole issue of leisure has increased dramatically in more recent years. I guess because of the five-day week. Have two days off, what are you going to do with that time? And so, ironically, leisure has itself become an industry. We talk about the leisure industry. And leisure becomes an increasing priority. Not only the five-day week, but maybe five weeks holiday a year or whatever, if you're a school teacher, even longer. Uh, and the whole thing of time off becomes a very important thing. And hence the attraction of the weekend but God made us for work the prophet Micah looking forward to the last days sees a time when there will be no more war and he says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks that's Micah 4 verse, verse 3 but if you're going to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, it implies work. Because that's what plowshares and pruning hooks are for. I suppose you could use them as unusual decorations around the house. But actually the implication is, even in that coming golden age, there will be work. That's what man made in the image of God is meant for. So we see that's what we're made for, then we need to have a, a right understanding then of work and a sense of motivation for what we're doing. What is our motivation for work? First of all, I'd suggest understanding God's sovereignty. When we think of the sovereignty of God, typically as Christians, under that heading immediately comes issues like predestination and election. The sovereignty of God. What about free will? And those are the issues that typically will come to mind. But God's sovereignty is about much more than that. 
God's sovereignty is about his rule over all of life and all of creation. And the person who has a real understanding or conviction about the sovereignty of God is never going to think in terms of a divide between the sacred and the secular because you see God who is sovereign is Lord over everything. So whatever we are doing, whenever we're doing it, we're doing it in God's world and we're doing it before Him. So that's our primary motivation in whatever work we're doing. This is in God's world and we're doing this before God. And so, of course, it means we are working for God. Paul expresses it like this in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So that's our motivation in everyday work. Whoever the employer, whatever the company, whatever the career we are involved in, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So in any situation, in a sense, God is our employer. And hence, whatever the job, we'll work at it enthusiastically. And we'll work at it conscientiously. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Not half-heartedly, not with resentment, but we're working for God. And the whole issue then is the fact that we love God. And we recognize He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over all our time, seven days a week. And so whatever we do, we're doing it for Him. Charles, Charles Wesley tended to express most things in hymn form, and he expressed this in hymn form. Maybe some of the older ones here will recognize this hymn, but just listen to the words. It's about everyday work. Forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue. Thee, only thee, resolve to know, in all I think, or speak, or do. The task thy wisdom hath assigned, Oh, let me cheerfully fulfill. In all my works, thy presence find and prove thy good and perfect will. In all my works, thy presence find. Whatever the job is, whether it's boring or important, stimulating, difficult, in all my works, thy presence find. And of course, that applies not just to everyday work in the sense of employment, but study, if you're a student, if you're at school, at college, or whatever, we're working for God. And so forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue. If you could discover the tune for that, you can hum it to yourself, whistle it happily as you go on the bus or the tram or whatever, on the way to work tomorrow morning, forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue thee only thee resolve to know in all I think or speak or do the task thy wisdom has assigned let me cheerfully fulfill in all my works thy presence find and prove thy good and perfect will great mindset to have in fact the third motivation then is going to be worship our work whatever it is is an expression of our commitment to God. And our work is then offered to Him 
as worship, because we're working for him. And we see that our life has been assigned to us by God, and therefore what we do, we do for him. After Paul's wonderful exposition of the gospel in his letter to the Romans, 11 chapters of it, he expounds the gospel in all its implications. And then in Romans chapter 12, he begins to look at the implications, practical outworking of this wonderful gospel. And what he says, having considered the outworking of God's gospel in terms of salvation, predestination, what about Israel, all of these things, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The response to God's mercy, he says, is to offer your body. In other words, everyday life. What we go around in all week, our body. To offer everyday life as a living sacrifice. This, he says, is your spiritual act of worship. John Stock comments on that about our worship. He said, it's not to be offered in the temple courts or in the church building but rather in home life and in the marketplace. Our total existence, our everyday life, offered to God in worship. Whether it's a job we like doing or it's a job we resent doing, we offer it to God in worship. Because we see that he's Lord over everything, our lives belong to him, and we want to worship him by the way we work. Obviously, vocal worship on a Sunday is important when the church gathers together, but vocal worship expressed on a Sunday that isn't matched by hard work Monday to Friday is really a contradiction and an insult to God. If we mouth worship to him, but we don't worship him with our bodies all week, then there's an element of hypocrisy there, which God sees. So our spiritual worship, or our reasonable, logical worship, is to worship him all week in whatever we're doing. But there are, of course, alternatives to that view and alternatives that many adopt. And I'm just going to name three. One, laziness. That's a pretty common alternative. Instead of working hard for God, laziness. Now, as we were saying this morning, we know that having been saved, there is still this conflict between flesh and spirit. Two voices, we can respond to either, and we know that the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so all of us, well I imagine all of us, have to fight the inclination to get by with as little as possible. To maybe be very careful to claim all our legitimate time off, and if there's a certain allowance for sick leave to make sure we get it all. Because really we want to do as little as possible. And a life of leisure can seem very attractive. And actually it's laziness. The book of Proverbs, which is a wonderful book, paints a devastating picture of the lazy person He's called the fool, or more graphically, the sluggard. 
And the biggest problem with the sluggard is getting up in the morning. Proverbs 26.14 As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Any of you identify with that? (laughs) The only activity is to go nowhere, just turning like a door on its hinges. And then the sluggard comes up with ingenious, outrageous reasons for not getting up and not going out. The sluggard says, it says in verse 13 in that same chapter, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. So it's better stay in bed, it's safe there. And the Bible says of that character, he's a fool. Laziness is pretty common, and many people do opt for that. But that's from someone who hasn't understood it's God's world, and we're living in God's world, and we're living for him, and we want to serve him diligently, conscientiously, all the time. Second alternative, scrounging. And we see from the New Testament that there seemed to have been people in the early church who had kind of dressed scrounging up in quite spiritual clothes. The way they justified scrounging on other Christians was, it seems to be, that they, they said that they were believing in the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. And because we don't know when he's coming back, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, it's hardly worth getting a job. Because to get a job would seem to indicate lack of confidence in the return of Christ. So they would say, because we believe Jesus is coming back, not going to get a job, and then they just rely on other people. And Paul seems to be addressing that issue in his letter to the Thessalonians, people who are just idle, people who uh, just scrounge on other people. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we didn't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, They're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. That's in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and the verses after that. And in every generation there are Christians who prefer to scrounge from other generous Christians rather than work hard to provide for their own needs. That is not a viable alternative. We are to settle down, Paul says, and earn the bread we eat. And a third alternative, which is so obviously wrong, is stealing. And stealing, of course, includes every form of gaining through dishonesty, every form from outright theft, burglary through, to things like dishonest insurance claims, falsifying tax returns, whatever, fiddling. 
And the Bible says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. The aim is always to earn and give, not to take. And there's a worrying trend you see in many churches, particularly, dare I say, and I don't want to stereotype people, but a trend among young adults. I'm ashamed to say more often young men than young girls to just not plan what they're going to eat, but just drop in on people, to hang around on a Sunday hoping they're going to be invited somewhere. You know, it's kind of just hoping someone else will always take responsibility. And uh, the Bible says, no, you work. You don't scrounge on for other people. Of course, we want to be generous to one another, but there have to be, there's got to be a, 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 this ethic of it's right to work and to give, not to be taking all the time. So in contrast to those three wrong alternatives, the Bible emphasizes hard work. Not just work, but hard work. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Hard work. Enthusiastic work because of the reasons we said. We're living in God's world. And we're worshipping him and we're doing it enthusiastically, wholeheartedly for him. Hard work. Paul draws attention in his letters to people he knows who work hard. And he publicly commends them. So in Romans 16 he says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. He publicly commends them because they're known to be hard workers. And it's, I don't know whether it helps to understand that or not, but the names Tryphena and Tryphosa are reckoned by scholars to be typical slave names. So it could be these are two women slaves. So of course they work hard because they've got to, because they're slaves. But notice what he says, they work hard in the Lord. And what they're doing, they're doing for God. And he commends them for that. He then says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you. And he's not embarrassed to draw attention to his own example. So we, uh, we've seen that in 2 Thessalonians and also in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. He says, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul was a hard worker. And he commends people who work hard. Later he says, uh, elsewhere he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and onwards, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. And notice that interesting juxtaposition there. By the grace of God, I worked hard. We can contrast grace and works. 
So it's not by works, it's by grace. That is true, that is the basis of our salvation. But grace means that we work. We're saying this morning, grace doesn't lead to apathy. Grace means we receive the Spirit of God, and if we receive the Spirit of God, we're receiving the Spirit of someone who works. God works. And so we will work, and we'll work diligently. And we're not looking all the time for the shortcut time off, where no one's looking or whatever. But Paul can encourage people to work hard. And he says, now look at my example. He said, I worked hard. Let me say he was a workaholic. He's working for God. So, first of all, we work simply because it is right to do so. We have been created for work. Now, I say that because I believe it. I often joke to people and say, I believe I was created for a life of leisure. Holidays are what it's all about. Give me a beach and the sunshine, and that's me. I feel that is what I was created for. Well, yeah, it's a nice thought, but actually, we were created for work. That was the foundational reason for our existence, and it's the foundational reason for why we go to work. That was God's design in making us. Secondly, we work to provide food and cover for ourselves and for those who depend on us. It's not the primary reason for our work. The primary reason for our work is it's right to work. So that's the primary reason. But secondly, we work in order to provide food and cover for ourselves and for those who depend on us. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Thirdly, we work in order to be generous. And that's the point that's made by Paul in the reference we saw earlier when he's saying to people, you know, those who have been stealing should not steal anymore, but should work, earn their food, and be able to give. We work in order to be generous. Fourthly, we must distinguish between our work and our worth. What I mean by that is, Our daily job, our daily work, might not command a lot of respect from people, but that doesn't have any bearing on our value. There is a difference between work and worth. So, menial jobs, but of great value in God's sight. Hence Paul commends Tryphena and Tryphosa, two slaves, the lowest form. But he commends them, and they've been commended now for 2,000 years, two slaves who work hard. Great value in God's sight. And there is a, a very real danger of confusing work and worth. At the risk of, well, this will maybe bring a few text messages in, but is this... Perhaps a reason why women who have had a good education find it difficult to settle for just being a mother. Just being a mother. You've seen the way I said it. Because that's menial. Surely I was destined for something better. If you think about it, 
What could be a greater responsibility and task than bringing up children for God? But no, in, in the world's eyes, just a housewife. And so, you know, Mary is at home. Uh, often when we're filling in forms or whatever, you know, the question would be, uh, occupation, uh, housewife. Oh, just a housewife, they say. And that's, oh, it's just a housewife. And people say, that's demeaning. No, it's not. It's of great value in God's sight. Work must not be associated with worth. Equally, because of a failure to make that distinction, it can drive people to overwork. Because they have a deep need to be well thought of, to prove something. Paul's hard work, when he said, I worked harder than all of them, was due to the grace of God at work in him. It wasn't trying to make himself feel more valuable. There is a distinction between work and worth. Next, we must distinguish also between work and job. In times of high unemployment, jobs are obviously hard to come by. But lack of a job doesn't mean daytime TV beckons. Just slob out in front of the television. Now, we can work even if we don't have a job. There's always work to do. Work to help other people. Work whatever. Meaningful work for ourselves or for others. Because laziness, well, that's the fall, what the fall gets involved in. The sluggard, the fall. No, we're called to work. And work and job don't necessarily go together. So lack of a job doesn't mean to say we actually don't work. And if we work when we haven't got a job, then actually we do stand a better chance of getting a job because someone who's obviously hard-working is a much better prospect for employment than someone, than someone who's demotivated and just lazy. Next, making money is not the objective. That is not... Why we work. You might thought, oh, that's a, my only reason for going out to work. I want to make money. Well, no, we work because it's right to work. We work to provide food and cover, but it's not the same as making money. You see, there's a, a slight distinction there. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, Making money the reason is dangerous. If, it's, if it becomes our motivation, it has a horrible tendency to take over and become a destructive obsession. That's what Paul is saying there. Many, he says some eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we live by faith in God. 
not faith in the paycheck. In many ways, having been in both categories, it is easier to live by faith when you have no visible means of support than when a paycheck comes, because when you get a paycheck, a regular salary, a regular wage, then you just start relying on that. And it's almost easier to live by faith when you've got nothing. But having a regular income, our faith should not be in that income. So that when we go through a time of recession, when there are economic problems, we don't start panicking. No, we're believing God. It was always by faith from first to last. If we have a regular income, praise God. If we don't have a regular income, praise God. We're trusting him and we live by faith in God, not uh, just the fact that we've got a salary. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We've got a heavenly Father who knows, and so we live by faith in him. Next, I've lost count. One, two, three, four, five, six, and Eighthly, we don't allow ourselves to cultivate a split personality where we are one person at home and in the church and someone very different at work. I don't know if any of you read or have read Charles Dickens. Maybe some of you are watching Little Dorrit as it's on television at the moment. And if you know anything about Charles Dickens, you know he has these crazy caricatures. I mean, he doesn't have characters in his novels. They're all caricatures, totally over the top. And in Great Expectations, there is a character called Wemmick, Mr. Wemmick. Mr. Wemmick, I'm having a little break now to do some English literature. Mr. Wemmick works for a particularly nasty individual called Jaggers. Mr. Wemmick's job involves him uh, dealing with money. He's hard-hearted, hard-nosed, sort of obsessed with money, which he refers to as portable property. That's at work. At home, he's a different character. And This is where you get into caricature. His home is a little cottage that has been made up to look like a castle. He's got a moat round it and a drawbridge, if you please. So when he goes home, he pulls the drawbridge up, and then he's a different person. At home, he cares for the aged parent, his father, who sits in the corner smiling, And when Pip goes to visit, Pip just keeps smiling. So, 
A conversation with Mr. Wemmick at work will have one set of values, and he refuses to talk about anything that belongs to his home, which is in Walworth. And so, just a quote, Wemmick says, Walworth is one place, this office is another. They must not be confounded together. My Walworth sentiments must be taken at Walworth. None but my office sentiments can be taken in this office. So he refuses to be the person he is at home when he's at work, and when he's at home, he forgets who he was at work, pulls the drawbridge up. Now, absolute caricature, except... Dickens is drawing from life there. And sadly, you can have Christians who are one thing at home, a loving, caring parent, partner, and at work, a bully. Or maybe someone gets involved in smutty jokes or whatever. Just one one of the crowd at work and totally different in the church. Pull the drawbridge up, that's work. Now we're in the church, now we're at home. It happens. And so you get the, the bully, the flirt, the, the person with a risque humor, and then apparently totally different at home. No, we live in God's world. We are unified people. Who we are at work is the same person we are at home. And who we are at home is who we are at work. And who we are in the church. We're living in God's world all the time. We don't develop a split personality. Some people would hate people from work to ever come into the church and see, oh, I didn't realize you went to church. And people would hate people from church to see them in their work environment, to see the reputation they've got there. It's God's world. He's sovereign. We don't have a split personality. We are Christians all the time, wherever we are. We're unified people. We belong to God, and we are consistently serving God, whether we're being observed by other people who know us in the home environment or people, we are, we are the same. And so we live to the same values. Some people say, yeah, but in my work environment, you can't live to Christian values. Then what are you doing there? And actually in any work situation, you live to Christian values. If you get the sack for it, well, martyrs have been known through church history. We don't tailor our behavior for the context. We are who we are all the time. Ninthly, we keep our job in a godly perspective. That's to say, our job and its demands don't determine the priority we give to family or the priority we give to church. Those priorities are determined by our walk with God. We're living by faith. Sometimes fear, namely the fear of losing your job or whatever, can cause people to give far too much prominence in their priorities to the job situation. Now, that doesn't determine what we do. Yes, of course we're called to work. But job doesn't determine whether or not we've got time for our families. And job doesn't determine our commitment to the church. But we walk with God. 
Some common reactions that I hear from people would be things like, in the church, we hear so much about church in the prayer meeting, we pray for church activities and so on, so much so that my job seems insignificant, undervalued. Yeah, that can happen. Obviously, in the prayer meeting, we're praying for things we're involved in together, although sometimes when, when we know about it, we pray about some work situations, but generally we're praying about what we know about, and there'll be things we're doing together. But it doesn't mean to say that your job is insignificant. You are, as we've said again and again, you are serving God where you work. And what happens when the church is together is meant to encourage you and equip you for the rest of the week. And if there are things where you work that we can back you in or pray for, please tell us, because we can only pray for what we know about. But we mustn't think that really what church is all about is just church. No, it's about people. People who are involved in life. And where you work means the church's life extends into that place because you're there. And, but we can only give expression to that if we know about things. Another comment, people say, my job is just boring. Remember someone who's uh, living in a, an area where work was hard to come by, he was well educated, had a degree, I think he had two degrees as it happens, and the only job he could get was sweeping the floor in a chicken processing factory. And he said, you're telling me this is my calling? That this is what God has prepared me for? Well, there are some jobs that are mind-blowingly boring and difficult. And, but, a better way of looking at it is, why did God put you there? Could it just be that you're there as a missionary? That God put you in that place because there's some people you're going to meet there? And never mind having a fascinating job, you know, where work and worth get linked. I want a job that makes me feel good. No. What about the slaves that we read about in the New Testament? And might not the cheerful way you cope with such a mind brain numbing job might that not be part of your testimony? And what is God trying to work in your character? Isn't it better to submit to God? Yes, of course it's appropriate to look for better jobs, but while we are where we are, to say, that's where I serve God. Forth in thy name, O Lord, I, uh, I go my daily labor to pursue. Whatever it is. Do you imagine that Paul found sowing tents a particularly filling, fulfilling occupation. It was his job. It's the way he earned money. A, a fine brain, a theological brain, uh, is aware of culture and so on, well-educated, and he sows tents. Yeah, and he does it for God. So if, if your attitude should be, and it could be there will be people here with this attitude, that your job isn't God's will for you, then the stark fact has to be faced that you're living the greater part of your life outside of God's will. If, God's, if your job 
isn't God's will for you, and it's what you're doing Monday to Friday, then the greater part of your life is being lived outside God's will. That cannot be. And so surely a change of attitude is called for. Say, no, I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to find the purpose of God in this, whether it's a job I like or I don't like. Another thing that people will say is, they'll say that their job is demanding, important, and potentially influential to the point where they can't really cope with too many church responsibilities and commitments. My response to that would be to say that we can be fully committed to the church in the sense of grasping what the church is about, seeing its centrality in God's purposes and so on, while not being free to carry particular responsibility due to the role that God has given us. You see, our, our primary call is to seek as a priority God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is bigger than the church. The church is here to display what the kingdom of God is like. But the kingdom of God is bigger than church. And we're seeking first God's kingdom. And so bringing in his kingdom can involve carrying responsibility in the political sphere, in medicine, in education, or whatever. And for Christians to retreat from jobs that are demanding, because, no, we we need time for the church, you think, well, yes, that can be good, but it can also be failing to bring the kingdom of God in those places where the Christian voice is so desperately needed. And if we're seeking first his kingdom, then we want to be salt and light, as Jesus said, in the world. And to be salt and light in the world, we've got to be out there. Our motives, however, can be a bit mixed on that one. Uh, For example, maybe for some people they find family life a bit of a challenge. Church responsibilities even more challenging, so it's easier just to... Immerse yourself in work. Now, that's not what we're talking about. Sometimes, because our motives can get a bit mixed, it's helpful to submit to some godly oversight on that one. But, and I can think of people who have said to me, you know, I've asked them to do things in the church, and they've said, I don't know if I can fit it in, but uh, maybe I need to reduce what I'm doing at work. Then when I hear what they're doing at work, I say, hey, that's where you're serving God. You're, You're bringing the gospel in that situation. Please don't retreat from it. And so, we ease back from asking people to do things. Another thing that will be said from time to time will be people who through age or infirmity are unable to go out to work. They're not fit for it anymore. The time, I guess, is going to come for all of us, ultimately, when we can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, I've finished the race. What happens then? Well, our aim, surely, is to finish well. Finishing the race means breasting the tape. And we want to finish well. And surely, as long as we have breath left in our body, 
we can continue to work. If the work is prayer, we can work for God. The time surely never comes when there is no work for us to do. But whatever uh, our circumstances, we, we can serve God. Laziness, just giving up, becoming a vegetable, is surely never the course to go. And then, of course, you get people who say, yeah, I've got a job, but really, I just wish I could be released in order to develop my ministry, to be full-time amongst God's people. And there can be a kind of resentment of having to be involved in stuff out there, secular stuff as it's viewed. It's uh, not really where our heart is. We, we just wish that we could be full-time amongst God's people. My response to that would be that perhaps your ministry is meant to be exercised full-time where you work. And where else can you be salt and light? And in any event, the, one of the qualifications for leadership in the church is reputation in the secular sphere, 1 Timothy 3, 7. So how we are at work is not irrelevant, it's very relevant. Are you seen where you work as a person who is absolutely reliable and totally committed? Are you seen as someone who is just filling time until the big break comes? And in any event, I would say, you know, we've been looking at the story of Moses over recent months, and surely, if anything, it tells us that being amongst God's people all the time isn't necessarily all it's cracked up to be. And, uh, yeah, I'll leave that one. But we are called to work. And uh, to just say, no, I want to get out of that. And no, wherever it is, actually, hard work. Hard work is what we're called to because God is always working. In Ephesians 6, verse 8, <coughs> Paul tells us, The Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. The Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. And the context where Paul says that is he's addressing slaves. In other words, he's talking about people who are involved in what we call secular work. And into that context, he says, the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. Because we're working for God. So our daily, diligent work will ultimately be rewarded in heaven. God does not have a sacred-secular divide. If what we are doing, 9 to 5, Monday through to Friday, we are doing for God, that registers in heaven. There is actually no such thing as you know, working full-time, as if when you retreat from secular work, that's full-time. No, we're all of us full-time. We're all of us full-time serving God wherever we are, employed, unemployed, in whatever career we are in. We are, we're full-time for God, and God will reward everyone for whatever good he does. Because he's Lord over every aspect of life, he doesn't put blinkers on on the day of judgment and say, I'm just going to evaluate what you did in the church. I'm just going to evaluate when you did what you did when you were being spiritual. He looks at all of life. And how we do our job 
is part of the deal. And God's reward relates to daily work. So the basic issue, of course, in judgment is our relationship with God. But what matters is that we relate with him all the time, everywhere, doing all that we do for his sake, because we want to please him. So, we're serving God all the time, whatever sphere we find ourselves in, wherever we are, we're there as children of God. Wherever we are, we're there as members of the church. So the church is involved where you work, because you're there. Compartmentalized living isn't something that God recognizes. He sees us as total people. And so in everything, boring, exciting, with promotion prospects or dead end, in everything we do, we look to see him glorified. We will, we will start with, um, what about working mothers should um, believing mothers go out to work? Um, should believing mothers go out to work? I think a lot depends on all kinds of issues, um, like the age of their children, for example. Um, and I'm incredibly reluctant to answer that question <laughs> although someone has asked it in good faith because I don't want to set out laws I don't like setting out laws or making some kind of law that then can be used to kind of beat people about the head um, so having said that whatever I'm about to say is not a law okay because the, the only basis we have for saying anything is the word of God. And that is not an issue that is addressed in the word of God. Given that the kind of society where most of the, in which most of the books in the Bible were written would be an environment where going out to work in a sense was not the issue because work was around the home. And so in an agricultural world, the fields are around the home, people worked uh, it wasn't a matter of going out to work it was working where you were um, and women were involved in that and so, uh, and then Proverbs 31 where it looks at the ideal wife uh, she is bringing up her family providing for her family, also involved in what we would call work outside, she's a businesswoman, she buys fields and so on um, and so to say you know make some blanket statement, um, mothers with young children shouldn't go out to work, is going beyond anything the Bible says. And therefore, we've got to be very careful. However, to be given children is a great privilege, and those who are childless and long for children will then look at those who have children and just wish they were in that situation. Uh, it is a great privilege, 
And the privilege is not just to have a child like some kind of fashion accessory, but to have a child that is going to be raised to know God, to be uh, learning to be obedient, some of the things we were looking at this morning. It's a great privilege to rear children who are going to go on to grow strong for God and be a credit to you. Therefore, to aim to get back to work as soon as possible and to hand young children over to others seems to me to be unwise, um, unworthy, seems to me. I think a, a child needs to be disciplined. Professionals can't discipline a child. And so children grow up never having learned discipline but always being distracted from bad behavior. And then they just need continual distraction. Now the Bible says they need discipline. Professionals can't do that. And so in the early years, a child needs to have clear boundaries set. Not to say in the early years you're smacking it all the time. I'm not talking about that. I'm t- discipline involves more than that. But nonetheless, it is so necessary. And that is set by a loving mother. Loving parents. But it's the mother who has the baby. At what stage then it is appropriate to go out to work again? That's for people to decide. But all I would say is, in my opinion, the privilege of having a child that you can raise for God is such a great one. It's not to be wasted. And to hand our children over to others for them to look after them and think, well, why did God give them to us in the first place? So that is tentatively, cautiously, my answer to that one. I would say, value the privilege that God has given you. Okay. Um, You mentioned about um, work maybe keeping you from being able to get involved in in church work um, and work in doing things in the church. But what about when work, uh, to do the job well that you're being paid to do, to do it to the expected standard, means that you're away from your family and maybe your wife thinks she's been neglected, should you continue to do that work? I don't like should you, ought you questions because (laughs) all all the time tend towards a bit of legalism. Um, (laughs) A husband is responsible to provide, but is also responsible to be considerate. And so a husband whose work, work takes him away from home, leaving a resentful or uh, emotionally needy wife at home, so, yeah, that's not good, but they'll talk about that together. Having said that, um, it, it's not inappropriate to be away from home. When, at least I hope it isn't, because when our children were young, I was away from home a lot. Um, so, you know, a three-week trip to India, leaving Mary at home with two children, not easy for her or for me, but it was right. We believed. And so, if together you accept it, that makes it acceptable. If one doesn't accept it, 
then it makes it a problem. And I think that really the whole issue is decided by how that couple handle it. If, if there is resentment, it's clearly wrong. Whether or not without resentment it would have been right or wrong or not is another issue. Um, but if work takes over so the family suffers, then I can't see if that's right. But the family won't suffer if both husband and wife are agreed that this is right and it's handled responsibly. I mean, it's just, it's almost like how long's a piece of string. Um, it is something that people have just got to decide. But where there is just indifference to family and, you know, children are neglected and so on, that can't be right. Okay. You possibly answered this next question then as well. But if you want to add something, I'll, I'll ask you the question anyway. Can you reconcile a job in the armed services with family? And church. So I, guess I don't think. Um, I don't need to reconcile. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, it can be reconciled because um, people are in the armed services and Christians are in the armed services. And uh, in the event of war and call up, um, uh, many will be in the armed services and many will die, leaving widows and fatherless children, which is a tragedy that goes with the whole deal. Um, but to say Christians should not do that, um, some would in all conscience say that, of course, because there are people who think it's wrong to fight anyway, and that is a view that has to be respected, as is equally the view that it is right. Um, we, I'm not needing to come down either side. I would again say it is something that husband and wife need to pray about and agree about together. And no one else has the right to set out laws on it. Um, where there is an agreement, we believe that this is God's will, then who of us can say other? If either is unhappy about it, then that is, becomes an issue that, again, they have to resolve themselves. A couple of linked questions here. Um, one says, with Acts 2, 44, following in mind, as a church, how can we help those who are made redundant or unemployed so that no one is overlooked? And someone else asks, if we're required to work, should the church give work opportunities to unemployed members? And should they be then given something for their work, presumably financially? Hmm. I think that, yeah, that, that is a fascinating question. In fact, it's something that um, uh, I've been thinking about, and I'm, uh, obviously Mark is sitting there as an elder and doesn't know I've been thinking about it. But anyway, um, and it's something we, <laughs> we need to talk about. We don't know, obviously, where things are going in terms of uh, the financial situation, and uh, it, it is at least highly unlikely that things are going to improve before they get a whole lot worse. And uh, unemployment is hitting. Obviously, it's hitting here in Sheffield. People are losing their jobs. As that begin, well, it's it's a question. First of all, how is that going to affect us as a church? And there are two possibilities. One possibility is yes, it will affect us as a church, and people amongst us here are going to be made redundant, and it's going to be a real issue. Another more attractive possibility is that the blessing of God will rest over us 
And as the financial crisis hits everyone else, it'll be like the land of Goshen in Egypt, where they prospered, God's people prospered, and everyone else was in need. And so um, I'm not going to speculate on which way it's going to go. I'd rather like the second option. But if in the event of people in the church here being made redundant, then I would say, yes, we do have to start looking at ways of dealing with that, in the light of what we see in Acts 2, that, you know, how, how do we help the unemployed amongst us? Job creation schemes, or just sharing with one another, or whatever, but there's got to be a radical approach to it. We can't just say, oh, it's tough that someone has lost their job, and then just carry on as if it hadn't happened. We're members of one another, and so some radical thinking, I think, is going to have to take place. What the outcome of that will be, the elders have not yet discussed. <laughs> no. um, I think, to be honest, all the other th- questions pretty much... Since my phone's just cut out, my phone's not working. <laughs> I've been asked. Ah, there we go. Um, or answered. Because you've mentioned prayer meetings for people, you know, praying for people... With work in prayer meetings. Um, someone else said helpful def- definition of work, but I think you've, you've given mm. a definition of what actually work mm. is. Um, so, someone said, why does New Frontiers take Monday off? But I <laughs> 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 uh, why, why do people in New Frontiers... Not everyone does. Um, around the churches it's quite awkward really because people take different days off so you never know when it's appropriate to phone people um, there's some who take Thursday off which seems to me the most odd day to have off I'm not sure of anyone who takes Sunday off but um, <laughs> Monday is a, in many ways a sensible day to have off because you know, particularly if you're preaching you've worked up to Sunday um, to take a, a day have your day off in the run up to Sunday just does not work because your, your mind is still working over what you've still got to do. On Sunday, you're finished. When I get home here from uh, tonight, um, my work for the week is over, then that's the best time to have a day off in many ways, except my brain will be working overtime tomorrow on all that's happened today, so actually it's not. Anyway, so Monday is the best, and then you start again on Tuesday. It's a simple thing, unless you've got young children. So when, we, when our children were at school, Um, Monday was not the best day to have off because they were at home on a Saturday. So I took a Saturday off then uh, in order to be with the kids. Uh, Not not the best day to have off because you're still thinking about what you're going to preach on Sunday, but you you have different options. Practically, Monday can suit. But it's not not a new frontiers rule, I do assure you. Uh, It's just a purely pragmatic thing. Okay. Okay. Someone's just texted another one in. Should we be seeking promotion in our work? Don't even think about it. (laughs) (laughs) The gift of discernment is working very well. (laughs) (laughs) But more generally, seeking promotion. I suppose it all depends how you seek it, really. Um, 
promotion will generally come if you're do, working conscientiously and working well. Uh, obviously, you know the principle of being promoted beyond your level of efficiency. Um, that can also happen, but assuming uh, you're working well, presumably you'll be given greater responsibility. If you're given greater responsibility, that can in, it mean greater influence. Um, so, but to, to live for promotion you know, to be eaten up with uh, the desire for it and then the frustration when someone else gets promoted and you'd gone in for that job, you know, that, I think, no, let's be content. But ambition is still a godly thing, but handled in a godly way. So, in general terms, um, the desire for advancement is, is a principle that God has given us. What about... Um, jobs that involve working on Sundays? Jobs that involve working on Sunday. Um, we are in, or have been for many years, in a privileged situation in this country in that Sunday has been generally observed as a day off. Uh, if you go to a country like India, of course, that is not the case, and so the Christians then have to work around that, that many of them are involved um, working on a Sunday and churches have to meet at different times. Certainly in the New Testament, Sunday was not the day off. Uh, it was when the saints gathered together on the first day of the week, but presumably that was after their day's work. Um, so I think we do have to learn to adapt as Sunday increasingly uh, is a day when people are involved in work. Times can come when we have to adapt. What is important is the Sabbath principle of one day off in seven. Um, it's convenient if we all have the same day, but it's not like Sunday must be that day, but there, we do need to ensure we have a day when our normal work obligations cease and we're able to give ourselves to other things. Um, as I say, it's desirable that it should be a Sunday. It's most convenient for the church and so on, but... If that became impossible, then we'd start meeting on a Sunday evening or whatever. When Paul is with the, the church, I can't remember in which location, he starts speaking. You remember that time when he's preaching till midnight and Eutychus falls out the window. They go and raise him up and then Paul keeps preaching till daybreak. Um, presumably they started late because they'd all been at work that day. And so that could be the norm that we preach until midnight and then round at daybreak, and then you go back to work the next day. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's no law. You mustn't work on a Sunday. Um, someone said that you mentioned um, laziness as an excuse for not working. Um, but what about people who are depressed? How does that fit in? If people are unwell, um, and depression obviously is... Uh, comes in that category, obviously you need to get well again. And so, of course, um, there will be conditions, physical, mental conditions, where work can't happen. Um, we're not saying um, that no matter what, you know, you've, you're on your deathbed with man flu and you've still got to go to work. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's better not to, because you just spread the germs around. So, uh, but if someone is depressed and unable to work, then they're unable to work. But hopefully, um, they will recover and get back to work. So, um, there will be many situations where uh, we we have to stop because of ill health or whatever. 
Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, I think that's pretty much it. There has been a question come in, but I don't understand it, really. So <laughs> right. I've asked them for clarification, but I haven't got it yet. Okay. So let's probably leave it there. Okay, I'd like to just pray and pray for all of you in the different situations, whether it's study, paid employment, or, or working that is not paid, or whatever. There's a whole variety of things. Uh, but I just want to pray. And I'd also just say, uh, please do pick up what I said, that in, when we meet as a church to pray, obviously we pray about things that we're involved in together. But you are part of the church. And if there are things in your work situation... Um, where you're facing challenges or whatever, please let us know so we can pray into that. It's, it's not that the prayer meeting is only for spiritual things. Hear what I'm saying. What we do all day, we're doing as members of the church, we're doing it for God. So we want to be involved.